0: I'm going to jump right in. I have to say that um, I'm, a, I'm a little off pattern for our Sundays and especially those that we've been in, in Romans. You'll notice there's no handout. I've got no slides. There are no community group questions, uh, things like that. I told Ben in a text this morning, I said, I'm just completely off the ranch uh, today. Uh, so, uh, so, but this, And part of that's because it's, today's going to be a little, I'll call it nonlinear. Um, we'll go to one place, we'll go somewhere else, uh, we'll come, start up another, come back to one, some examples here and there, and then we'll end up where we're going to end up. And uh, some of you might find yourselves thinking, where is he going with this? (laughs) Uh, So bear with me on that. Um, But today we're in Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13, if you want to turn there now. But first I'm going to back up to last week. Um, So last week we were in 1 through 7, chapter 15, and Dave spoke about welcoming well. Well. In that context, and there's a bit of continuation from last week to this week uh, with welcoming well and I think when Paul wrote this, I think to put it lightly, because he's writing to, to you know, a letter to the Romans and you know, them being Gentiles, it may have been very difficult for Gentiles to welcome Jews well, and it may have been difficult for Jews to welcome Gentiles well. And so our text, part of our text today builds on that, um, specifically in verse 5, and if you go up a little bit uh, from where we're going to be today, you'll see that, that verse 5 is compelling the readers not only to welcome each other well, but also to praise and worship together the Messiah, the same Messiah. It says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now you've got to keep in mind, right, he's writing to the Romans instead of you know, essentially broadly you know, a set of Gentiles. Um, and he's saying not only welcome each other well, but praise and worship together. Jews and Gentiles praise, worship the same Jesus together. So that's one piece of continuation into our text today. The other piece of continuation into our text today, if you go back to verse 4, it says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so now, with that understanding and what's, what's kind of preceding today's text, um, I'll go straight into today's text, and you can read along um, if you'd like. I'm going to add in a couple things, not adding to scripture, but just a little. <laughs> Greta's like, you're going to burn if you do that. Um, so, uh, uh, But just to um, you know, give it some, maybe some clarity if it's the first time uh, that, you're, that you're going through it. So verse 8, we'll start in there. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised... That would be the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Primarily, we think of the, you know, as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So he he became a servant to the circumcised in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. That's kind of a message to the Jews, right? And in order that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, might glorify God for his mercy. And and as it is written, so, so now what, what's happening in this text is it, it, that Paul's reaching back into the Old Testament, bringing out some verses before, this is before Jesus was on earth and things like that, stating that the Gentiles will praise together, they will praise Jesus, will pra- praise God. So he says, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So these are all Old Testament references. It was already known before Paul wrote this, before Jesus was on earth, that Jesus would be the Saviour of all mankind everywhere, and that Gentiles and Jews would praise him. Okay? But that's not where we're going to focus today. Where we're going to focus today is here may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that the power of the Holy Spirit so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And it's this phrase here this god of hope and the rest of that verse that through abound in hope that i want to uh, want to spend some time on today and so when i was reading this and thinking about today i was just thinking about okay how does this work so it seems perfectly fine. I'm perfectly fine with this when I'm you know, singing songs, worshiping, praising, glorifying, and thing like, things like that. But how does it work when I'm not? How does it work when I feel hopeless? And I have to admit that there's many times that I don't really think I'm abounding in hope. And so to consider hope... And I thought maybe we might weigh hopelessness. Um, It's kind of like you don't understand how good Pepsi is until you've had to drink Coke. (laughs) Someone agrees with me. That's not my wife. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, so let me tell you somebody, someone I've heard of. I, I don't, I didn't, I know of him, didn't really know him, but eventually kind of grew to a point where I kind of felt like I, I knew him. Um. And I kind of kept track of him a bit, or oh, that sounds weird, I wasn't stalking him, right, <laughs> or anything, um, but I knew he was a believer, and uh, kind of had some awareness of him. Upstanding person, you know, f- nice family, no major problems that I knew of um, in relationships, health, anything like that, um, you know, materially, you know, just, you know, fine, I mean, I, I think you might consider him wealthy, generous to others, life is going on and things like this, and then and this is what caught my attention, was just this series of devastating losses. Um, I think his children all passed away. Um, he Huge health issues came upon him. Um, I think his wife did survive. Um, and when I heard about this, I was just a little more attentive to it, right? Um, and... And then, so I started to get a little more exposure and things like that. And at first, the, the kind of the attitude, the prevail, prevailing attitude, was, "Well, God gives and God takes away." I'm like, "Wow, you know, that's uh, that's pretty impressive, I guess." Um, just in light of the calamity um, and how devastating all of this was, and but then it's it kind of folded into or or dropped into you know some some caving in and 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 lashing out, you know, and and understandably, right? These feelings of, you know, I wish I'd never been born, um, yearning, right, that his life would just end, that I don't have to put up with this anymore. Um, you know, kind of this why go on living uh, feeling and stuff like that. And I I mean I you know I just felt so I mean how can you not feel Just desperately bad for somebody like this um, and then then it took a turn a bit, and he kind of started to rationalize a bit, like you know my sin brought this upon me like i this is self inflicted um, and but then on the flip side, saying, well no i 'm a good person i'm i 'm righteous, all these kind of things and and just this kind of back and forth between, you know, it's, it's me, it's not me, it's me, it's not me, uh, things like this. And and I think these questions of why, why me, um, you know, going, going through all of this. Um, but I think, you know, it kind of ended up at, you know, there's got to be something self-inflicted, something that I did, right, to, to bring this on. Um, and I think with that... Probably knowing, you know, his state of you know, a, a, a sinful person, right? That there's no hope of this being restored because, you know, if this is self-inflicted, right, and it's self-inflicted because I'm a sinless person, well, that does it. I'm not, I'm a sinful person. Sorry, um, that's that's not going to change. That's that's who and how I am, and so so this bit of hopelessness. And I was kind of intrigued, right, that this self-inflicted, like I brought this upon myself because I think as a society, as a culture, as a people, we kind of tend to pin, maybe because it's easier for us to pin reasons for trouble and loss and that, that you know, those being maybe catalysts or reasons for hopelessness, we tend to pin it on others, or we, maybe we want to pin it on others. Um, when you're in a situation, right, where you feel you've been wronged, right, you suffer loss, things aren't turning out the way that you expected, and you feel like there's a catalyst, right, that something or someone else that you don't, and that that, that was the catalyst, and you don't see a path to things being restored, you don't see a path to things being resolved, you can feel right? Like it's a hopeless situation. Let me give you some maybe simple examples. <clears throat> I would be in a much better job situation if only my boss had an understanding of the realities of my job, right? It's like, okay, I, I was fine in my job, but it was my boss's problem that he, doesn't under, he or she doesn't understand. And now I'm in this hopeless situation in my job there wouldn't be so much divisiveness in the country if only the president wouldn't or would do this. Frank Scott. <laughs> A shout out on that one. Huh? Okay, wherever you're at on that. Um, right, but w- that kind of implies that it wasn't divisive. here. He did something and now it is, right? And, and it's up to somebody else. Um, it was caused by somebody else and it's up to somebody else. There is no hope in instilling a more respectful attitude in my children because all of the messages that the media pumps into their eyes and ears and eventually their brains. Right? So they were respectful. Something happened, the media, to them. Now it's hopeless to resolve because I can't change that. You know, what what happened um, and things. I would be I would know how to be a better spouse. If only my parents were a better example to be. My parents are here. I'm not talking about them. <laughs> I still might not be a great spouse, but <laughs> I would have a more loving relationship with my spouse if only they did this or that. I'll fill in the blank. And so if it's somebody else's fault, for this loss or hopelessness that I feel and or to regain what I think I deserve, right? Then it's somebody else's responsibility to resolve it for me. Now, there, yes, there are problems where people and parties are responsible, right? Don't get me wrong on this. Um, but then if these troubles were to be resolved or if they didn't occur in the, in the first place, would my hope be restored? Would I be abounding in hope? And in these couple sets of examples, you know, problems, troubles, like that. my friend, this person I knew of, um, being self-inflicted, or problems, troubles, things like that that cause me to feel hopeless, being the responsibility, or I feel like the responsibility of somebody else, we still look for causes. We still look for responsibility. We still look for accountability. Now, again, this isn't, this isn't wrong or bad to look for accountability, especially in, certain, in a lot of circumstances, right? When there are real crimes, real abuses, just sheer neglect, true injustices. In those cases, absolutely Justice has to prevail, and for sure, perpetrators must be held to account. But does addressing this accountability actually restore your hope? Your boss, the president, the media, you, know, parents, spouses, things like that, you know, one thing might get better, but something else is going to disappoint. Sometimes I get choked up when I get onto certain parts of this. I think my children now place wagers whether I'm going to or not. <laughs> so whoever you is on which side of it, you win. Um, so I think there's also kind of another category of you know kind of agony and hopelessness and this notion of they didn't deserve it or I didn't deserve it. And I think it gets a really, really difficult when these deep problems that are suffered, these deep losses that come about, these deep pains, that you can't point, rightly or wrongly, you can't point to a responsible party or event or anything like this. And when we come upon these cases where you can't identify, you can't point to a reason, things like that, I think it, it digs up yet a deeper you know, hopelessness, a deeper why. Um, why is this happening? They didn't deserve, I didn't deserve, um, things like this. Let me tell you something that I personally struggle with. Why was my niece born with a genetic disorder? She never walked. She never spoke a word. She never did anything that we would associate with enjoying life. And she, why did she pass away at such a young age? Why? She didn't deserve this? (sighs) Was my father-in-law so desperately hopeless that he took his own life? Or was it the medication that he was on that was prescribed to him? That just gripped him and in a point of weakness Satan grabbed hold. Why did Martha miscarry? So we get into these modes of saying they didn't deserve it. And and they they had no hope. How could they have hope? But in all these examples, something was taken away, and, and sometimes we have no confidence or there's no possibility of restoration, and this can prompt hopelessness. Another way that we use hope is when things are uncertain um, and there's a state of uncertainty. Um, these are a little lighter. <laughs> um, I hope I get a good grade, right? So I'm not certain I'm going to get a good grade, so I'm going to hope that I do. I hope my flight arrives safely. There's an ounce of, you know, of uncertainty or possibility that it might not, and so I hope that doesn't come to pass. I hope this health problem is resolvable, which means I kind of, I'm not confident that things will get better. I just hope, I just have to hope that they do. Again, there's nothing wrong with this. But I think if we use these ideas in these contexts of hope, we're devaluing a greater and deeper hope. Okay, I said non-linear, right? right? Let me go back to this guy that I knew. Knew of. So you guys know him too, his name is Job. You can read about him right after Esther and right before Psalms, and this idea of so he got to this point of of deserving or not deserving, and it began to dominate. Right, voices of you must have done something to deserve this became more frequent, and he but he had but then he convinced himself that he was good, righteous. There could and that there couldn't be a reason. And that, that he didn't deserve this the losses that he suffered and the accompanying hopelessness. And and he gets to a point where he's aching and demanding kind of this, this you know this uh, you know balancing of aching and demanding an answer from God. And even his friends, you know, as he's as he's going through this, his friends even try to tell him how to behave toward God. And to his amazement, God answered. Now, I'm not sure I would want to be on the receiving end of the type of an answer or the way this started off. Um, let me just read to you. Uh, don't, don't, don't need to turn there. You can if you want. It's Job 38. Um, God comes in and, you know, I don't know what. God sounds like. I think he'd like whatever he wants to, but my hunch is this is pretty stern, pretty, you know, like, and stuff like that. So the way he starts, when God comes into the story, he, he comes back to, he comes to Job after he's demanded, and he's aching for this answer, and God says, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? What he's saying is, who the heck are you to think you know what the heck is going on? And then this one. Now, this is God speaking to Job. Now, prepare yourself like a man. <laughs> Where's this going? And then, and then God says, I will question you and you shall answer me. This sounds like a smackdown. (laughs) And then God proceeds for four chapters with what I would say is a comprehensive account of his power. And he's leaving no question that he is God. Now, Sometimes, when I come across this and I think about God entering into this story when Job is aching and demanding an answer, and God comes in with this as his intro, <laughs> right, sometimes it makes me think of um, some, some, something I heard somebody say uh, a while back, and i just it just hit me you know really, really profoundly, and i I, I like to repeat it, maybe just so I hear it again uh, and, and that that I think perhaps the hardest, the the four hardest words in Scripture are the first four. In the beginning, God. Because if we don't get this, if we don't get this right, if we don't believe it, and if we don't submit to it, nothing else works. Nothing else works. And I think to a degree, even though this was coming in like a smackdown, or what felt like a smackdown, right? Feels like it to me, that perhaps that's what God was doing to Job, reminding him of those first four words, in the beginning, God. But I can't help but think that even though Job was receiving perhaps a rebuke, that he might have been just plain relieved and reassured right that god was present and that god cared enough to give him to to remind job of who he is and to remind job that god is not silent and now, even though God starkly told Job that he was in no position to determine his own state of righteousness and whether or not he deserved this, and is in no position to determine who suffers loss, who suffers heartache. He did, God did tell Job that he is God, he always has been, and that he is with Job. Job did agonize Over his losses. There's no question about that. But was there a deeper agony? And did he have a deeper sense of hopelessness? Not because of what, yes, because of what he lost. But was there something deeper going on out of this feeling and convincing himself that God had abandoned him? And perhaps maybe he did lose something, at least in his own mind he lost something. He had communion with God. He felt like he was abandoned and that God was silent on this whole thing. And that this was taken away and lost and that prompted this deeper sense of hopelessness. And was it this loss of hope that defined the depth of his agony? We don't know exactly when Job was alive. There's some understanding that he would have been alive before this psalm was written. I think it's a pretty good idea that that's the case. But I think had this psalm been written before Job, that maybe this describes what was going on in Job's heart and soul. Now, before I read it, let me just talk about a word in the first two, the first verse, pants, okay? And for children to, um, pants is not these, right? It's not, um, you know, pants on the ground or things like that. It's not this. It's um, kind of this longing and breathlessness of, of intense eagerness and things, okay? So when I say pants, that's what it is. If you think of these pants, it just doesn't work. But perhaps this is is what's going on in Job's soul uh, as he's he's considering, have I been abandoned by God? It's Psalm 42. "As As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my, f- my food day and night, while, my t- my, while they, my tears, say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I will go into the throng and lead them in a procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multiple keeping festival, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and from Hermon and from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, at your breakers and your waves. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By, the, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and by, at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, my rock. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemy, as with a deadly as with a deadly wound in my bones? My adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all day long, "Where is your God?" Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall praise him again. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Can you see the struggle there, right? That that on one hand, why are you cast down, right? On the other hand, hope in God. And I feel like maybe that was going on within Job. And this feeling of have you been abandoned? And that leading to hopelessness. And do we struggle with that? See, we feel like we lose hope when problems are unresolvable, when wrongdoers are not held to account, when things are uncertain, when we've lost something or are suffering and don't see a path to what we'd call normal. Okay, back to our text. When it is written, the God of hope it isn't referring to anything that can be lost. It's not referring to anything that will, that will suffer. It is not referring to anything that is uncertain. Even though we use the word hope for, to characterize all of those things, that's not what, what this God of hope is. That's not who this God of hope is. Yes, he has dominion over all those things. No question about that. But that's not the hope that Paul writes of in our text. The hope that Paul is referring to is something that's already been established, cannot be taken away. It is steadfast, it's true, unchanging, certain, everlasting, eternal. It was promised by God, and it was secured for each one of us through the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, I'm non-linear again. I'm going to come over here, <laughs> track with me. God gives a, or the Holy Spirit in the book of Hebrews gives us a reminder of how impenetrable, how steadfast, how rock solid this is. In Hebrews 6, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since God had no one greater by whom to swear to, He swore to himself, "There's no one greater." And he said, "Surely I will bless you and multiply you." And Abraham, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people, we, right? we swear by something greater than ourselves. We swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So you have a promise and you have an oath. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchanging things, a promise and an oath, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Listen to this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, I'm not going to get into that. There's all kinds of um, uh, ideas about this Melchizedek. But I want to point out two things in this verse, or in this series of verse, right that God sealed this promise with his statements he, with a promise and an oath. There is nothing that we can comprehend that is more sure. He resealed our reunion back with God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This inner place behind the curtain that the writer of Hebrews talks about in Old Testament times, right, they had the, the Jews had the tabernacle. The high priest would go in. They would go into the holy, of Hol- the holy place in the holy of holies where only the high priest could go, and it was as a representative of the Jewish people. But Jesus is not merely a representative. It says here in the text that he's a forerunner on our behalf. And if there are if there's a forerunner, there are after runners. And I think it's pretty clear that as believers, each one of you, myself, we are the after runners. And by being our forerunner in this, he has secured our place in communion with God, in right standing. And so before we are there in heaven, before we are singing or before we are singing praises with the angels, in the midst of all of our problems, our losses, our sufferings, no matter things that we expect or long for, we have abundant promises that he will never leave us, he will never forsake us. So maybe Job's deepest agony was that he was abandoned by God. We all have God's promise, his oath, the sacrifice of his son to overwhelmingly convince us and display to us that he will never abandon us. This hope existed before the foundations of existence itself. Before anything we see or experience, it cannot be taken away. It does not need to be restored because it is more secure than anything we can fathom. And its creator does not abandon. He never has and he never will. Knowing that this is true, this is who I know as my God of hope. Knowing that this is true, with that, I can abound in hope. I do hope that the problems, losses, sufferings that you might, may be experiencing, I hope they get resolved. I hope there's restoration. I hope you are comforted. Your job, your family, your marriage, relationships, finances, justice for wrongs. I do hope you get good grades. Mine right there. (laughs) (laughs) That your travels are safe. That health problems aren't desperate and agonizing. I do hope for your peace and joy. But even more so, I do hope that you enjoy the certainty deep, deep in your soul of the God of hope. I do hope that you enjoy, the, enjoy this because you know the certainty of Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And that in this, You abound in hope.